Welcome to the Growth Pioneers Podcast. This is your host, Doug Irwin. On today's episode of the podcast, I have a great conversation with Adam Saban, the CEO and co-founder of PeopleGroove. This is the first in a series of podcasts dedicated to highlighting new founders to Reno. One of the things I really like about Adam is his core values and his philosophy and the reasons why he chose to relocate to Reno and build a company in our community. So on with the podcast. So welcome, Adam, to the Growth Pioneers podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah, excited to be here in Reno and uh, living our best Reno life out here. Oh, I love it. I love it. When did you end up coming to the community? It's been about 12 months now. So started off as a kind of an experiment getting out of the Bay, rented a place here month to month. And next thing we knew it, we're homeowners here in Reno and love it here and aren't turning back anytime soon. That's great. Yeah, no, I, it's, I've been really looking forward to our conversation. You know, you know, I connected for lunch maybe six months ago or something. And, you know, I just really appreciated the company you're building, your, you know, your personal philosophy and, you know, obviously making Reno your home always puts you in good, in good company in my book. So, yeah. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background? Yeah, certainly. Grew up in San Diego. My, my parents uh, moved to San Diego from South Africa originally. And one thing that I feel very grateful for looking back is the investment my parents made in my education. First, that was in various schools in San Diego and later was fortunate to move out east and go to school at Penn in Philly. And it's those experiences that frankly ended up being the inspiration for starting this company, PeopleGrove. Uh, when I looked back at the jobs I'd been lucky to have, the schools I'd been lucky to have. While I'd like to think it was because I studied hard or worked hard, it's not really the whole story. Uh, there were people, there were mentors that I'd had access to that kind of changed the game for me. And and that became really the inspiration for this company. Yeah, no, it's when I was looking at your background, I mean, it looks like you've had some pretty remarkable internships. And, you know, when I was thinking about you know, our conversation, it reminded me of a lot of the things that happened to me in my career, you know, having my mom help get me into Motorola, getting the right mentorship, getting the right internships really put me a leg up. And it seems like, you know, you all had a lot of that same experience, but then, you know, you've taken the next step further and building a company to really bring that same access to scale or, or really to kind of, I don't know, maybe democratize access to quality mentorship. Tell me a little bit more about um, what you're doing at PeopleGrowth. Yeah, so our mission has always been to help students and, and young professionals have access to the mentorship and social capital that can change one's life and that it not matter what zip code you're born in or what your parents do. Now, how do you actually turn that into a company uh, as opposed to, say, a, a nonprofit organization? We started by working with universities. So take a given university. Uh, generally speaking, they'll have an alumni network that is geographically distributed across the country. Many of those alums would be more than happy to pay it forward and support students. But frankly, they weren't often being asked. Right? Everyone can point to that story of being called in the middle of dinner for to give a, another gift, another check to the school that they just graduated from. 
but few were being had been able to point to how they could support in other ways. And so in turn, we built really a software platform, a SaaS platform that universities could license. They could launch to their respective communities of students, alumni, sometimes corporate partners and friends. And it would essentially operationalize mentoring interactions. What goes into that, whether it's recommending certain individuals, guiding what to say in a conversation, activities, uh, certainly reporting and tracking for the institutions paying for the platform on behalf of their communities. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and how does this, you know, we, we brought in the MIT Venture Mentoring Program, which was, you know, obviously birthed at MIT. It was a, it was a great program for the community. And, but I think one of the things that I'm hearing you know, you say is, you know, you create this platform for the university, then it gives them, you know, metrics and, and understanding of how those interactions are happening to really demonstrate the value. Because I think that that was one of the challenges that we faced, you know, just tracking mentor interactions, getting the data, then showing how that translates back up. And so the fact that you have a platform that enables you to track that, what are some of the universities taking that information back? And then are they turning it into other actions? Are they, you know, what are they doing with that information? So I'll start by sharing what are sort of the key metrics that every university must care about. So first, it's enrollment. To what extent are you attracting new students to your university? Once you've then attracted those students, to what extent are they persisting? Are they graduating on time? From there, to what extent are they getting careers and jobs commensurate with the investment that they made in their degree? And then, of course, after they graduate, are they staying connected? Because you do hope one day they'll give a gift. And so, in turn, our platform and the data we present aims to tie our work back to those things. So as an example, take enrollments. We were able to show that when prospective students were considering a given campus, if they had access to real students and real alumni from that campus and had meaningful conversations, they would be far more likely to enroll. They'd also be far more, more likely to show up on day one. Then you think about, okay, they're now there. What are signs that would indicate that a student is at risk of dropping out or is on a path towards success? And again, some of the data we can show in our platform speaks to those sort of things. So really, right, we, as a platform, we have to demonstrate our ROI towards things that matter to our ultimate customer, which in that primary case is the university. Yeah. And you have some pretty remarkable customers. I mean, you're with your Stanford as one of your customers, USC, Michigan. I mean, you have some pretty marquee customers. So, I mean, that must speak to the value. What are some of the pushbacks, if any, that you're seeing from other universities? Is, is it, do you have to be a Stanford to really understand the value of this? Or what, what are some of the things that you're seeing? Well, I would say as a strategy, we believe that universities generally look upwards when they aspire to you know where they want to be and regarding their peers. Very few look downwards. So as a strategy, we targeted universities that had really strong brands and recognition to be early partners. I mean, we did 
everything you can imagine to get those early customers, right? Sure. Pretending, hey, we'll be in Ann Arbor uh, next week for a conference. Can we come by and meet you? There was no conference. If they said yes, we booked a flight to Ann Arbor. Love it. And so today, though, right, the goal is not for this platform to be a school just for the top universities. That was a tactic to break into a market. Uh, Really, the goal is to support students irrespective of the type of institution. And that includes everything from large public state universities, uh, hopefully more community colleges in the future. And in turn, there's a lot of work to be done, right? We've made some initial progress, uh, but there's definitely a lot left to do. Yeah, no, look, I really appreciate what you're doing. I mean, I had a firsthand experience with this. And, you know, we do a lot of work with the university. And I think University of Nevada Reno has come a long way. But I think, you know, there's a lot of opportunity for them to improve this with student engagement. In fact, we're, you know, my colleague Brian is already talking about how do we connect up alumni to the venture community. And, you know, there's multiple opportunities to, to kind of invest and give back. But I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. And what we've seen at the uh, at our university is a really strong desire for internships uh, and mentorship. And just it's not quite there yet. So, But I have to imagine that this platform has applications beyond just universities. Are there other markets that you're, you're going after? Yeah. And focus is always a tricky thing because you, know, you don't want to bite off more than you can chew as a kind of resource-constrained company. With that said, we certainly have a fair number of nonprofit organizations that are partners uh, where they think about their members as alumni in some respect. As an example, Teach for America is actually a partner where they were hoping to create a sense of community and support amongst current and former teachers. As many go through that program, often thinking about what they might do next, whether it's to stay in education or take a different journey. Uh, Increasingly, we've spent time with companies. So as an example, Visa has a program called the Black Scholars and Jobs Program, where Visa made a commitment to give a set of students a scholarship each year on the condition that those students would engage with a Visa mentor each year. They would attend certain career boot camps. They would partake in internships. And at the end of four years, they would guarantee those students a job at their company. Well, that was a really bold idea. And because those students are distributed across the country, it's a lot to operationalize. And we were lucky to become a partner of theirs in thinking about how to really manage, track, and and drive efficacy for such a program. And so something that we're spending a lot more time on is thinking about how can employers and companies and their employees help and uplift students from all the different schools we work with and give them inroads into industries and companies that they might otherwise not have. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant solution. Honestly, one of the the, the number one thing we hear when we're talking to companies relocating to the community is, where's the talent pipeline? And I think people, you know, what what we've taken from that is there's a, just a global competition for quality talent. In fact, actually, Brian and I were talking about this today. You know, when thinking about a startup, a lot of people were like, "Where's the money?" There's a lot of money now, and money's a little bit more efficient now. Everybody's like, "Where's the good talent?" And so what I'm hearing you say is, you know, this platform enables 
corporate or companies to access great young talent and then work get to know them through through their development. Is that is that about right? Yeah, and I would actually that's right. And I would also give you a specific example. So if you surveyed college students today and asked them, what is a CRM? What is business intelligence? What is Salesforce? Jobs that are high paying, really high paying jobs, most students wouldn't have an idea. Like I, I'm a mentor to a student right now and we were talking about the the role of a business analyst and how so many of the responsibilities align with things she's really passionate about, but she'd never heard of the role. So my ability and the, the ability of others to expose students to these skills, to these paths, that I, I don't blame higher ed, they're changing so rapidly, it's hard to keep up with. That then allows those graduates to become career ready and many more enter the job market career ready so that there's not so much competition because we're, we're bringing more supply into the market that is well prepared. What is a tragedy in my opinion is that many college students will go through four or five years of college and then frankly have to go through another boot camp or last mile training because they're ill prepared. Well, now they're stra- now they have student debt and now they're you know having to take an extra period of time to get that first job out of school. Uh, that seems like something that employers could help prevent by guiding students earlier. No, I completely agree with you. And I appreciate the fact that you're not blaming higher ed. I mean, I think there's everybody has a role to play in this. You know, we were talking with I was talking with Jeannie Reith, one of the former guests, about the importance of liberal arts education. I think if you can pair a lot of the great theory with the practical applications and the practical work experience. And and like you said, just even knowing what the role is, that's the best of both worlds. I mean, this was true when I was in school. I had got a computer engineering degree, but only through my internships did I really understand the tools that they were using in industry, which were not the same that they were using at the university. And, I, and that's still a challenge today. So the real gap is getting that real on-the-job training or that you know mentorship to help people drive you down a certain path. So I think that makes a lot of sense. So what are some of the success stories you've seen with the platform? Yeah, it certainly depends on the use case. So starting with the enrollment use case for universities, Santa Clara and University of San Diego, for example, they saw a considerable increase in the likelihood that a student who was admitted to their school would actually pick their school if they were able to engage with the university's community of current students, successful alumni, and even faculty at times, I think the rate was actually three times higher. And wow. so that's certainly one piece. On the other end of the spectrum, you have universities who were able to compare alumni giving amongst alumni that had engaged with students in these sorts of mentorship programs and those that had not. And it too had considerable giving propensity improvements. So wow. that was the case at Georgetown, at Notre Dame, and, and a number of others. That's great. And I just think that anything you can do to you know create more prepared students, the better. I, you know, I've seen this firsthand in a small case. Our, one of our local startup companies worked with the intern coordinator and, and ended up hiring 17 data scientists out of the university. And it was kind of a, a unique experiment, and it, and it really worked well. You know, there's 
to be able to get firsthand experience working with students, uh, you know, teaching them culture, you get to get to align. So anything you can do to facilitate that, the better. And the fact that you can do that really at, at a scale that's probably never been tried before, I think is really remarkable. I mean, what are some of the challenges you're facing as an organization? I mean, you've raised quite a bit of venture capital. I mean, the company's been growing. You, I saw that you're the third fastest growing ed tech company, according to the Inc. 5000. So congratulations. Uh, that type of scale also brings challenges, I know. So what, what are some of the challenges you guys are facing? Well, there's certainly just high level, higher ed challenges to always consider. 2020 is certainly a challenging year for all, but particularly higher ed as well. There were some universities who really struggled in 2020 to uh, go remote, go online in their learning. And some of those universities have seen their enrollment drop as well. And then there are others, take the Cal State system, that had actually seen the opposite. They they were prepared uh, for online learning and they're actually in a strong place. So just as a market, right, there's a lot of uncertainty that comes with all those changes. And nevertheless, we feel very fortunate that like our, our business on the whole has done pretty well through that, but know that uncertainty remains and persists uh, in terms of the higher ed funding model and all those sorts of things. On the flip side, there's certainly challenges uh, that exist internally. So today we are a work from anywhere company and we'll be a work from anywhere company indefinitely. And so for many of our employees who'd been at the company for years, that wasn't a challenging transition to make, if I'm being honest. In fact, many of them were remote employees to begin with. What can be more challenging is onboarding new employees that you know, are isolated, don't get those chance encounters in an office, uh, and you just have to be even more intentional with how you onboard them, not just for their role, but for the company and culture as a whole. So, yeah. What are some of the best practices you've learned as a result of that? I mean, you know, being a, a remote only workforce, but and culture is critical. I mean, you, you know, obviously there's an ethos that comes through your company in terms of your product and what you're trying to develop. And, but that starts with your employees. So how are you able to maintain that culture as you're growing and especially with a remote workforce? Well, we certainly don't have it all figured out, but I can share a, a couple examples and, and tactics that have certainly been important. So take even just the frequency of communication. Sounds cliche, but we once had all hands meetings where leadership would present to the company every two weeks. We now do that weekly. It's important to do so. It gives a chance for everyone to be present at the same time. As another example, right? whereas there were in-person happy hours in the past, how do we translate even just like fun get-togethers as a company? And it requires intention. One of our employees uh, stepped up and hosts these like trivia events that just bring people on and make them feel like they're part of something fun and they enjoy their colleagues. And that requires effort rather than just saying, hey, everyone join this Zoom at five o'clock. Like that's pretty boring, just staring at a bunch of faces. Oh, I've done that so many times. I'm with you. I think we're all over that. But, but that requires effort, right? Requires probably more effort than just uh, telling people which bar to meet you at. <laughs> there's, there's a little more intention there. Sure. And then, you know, hiring is, of course, maybe the, the most important thing when you think about instilling and 
preserving a culture, how do you ensure that the values that important that are important to your company are infused in the hiring process, perhaps as non-negotiables? And then when you think about things like performance reviews or ensuring that those values are not just something that you put on a wall, that that's part of the process. So like, how do you assess each employee according to those values? So at the end of the day, to me, culture is just a output of how serious you are about the values of the company. Yeah. So what are some of the core values of your company? I mean, core values are big, uh, really important to me. I'm just curious what some of your values are. Yeah. I mean, one, I guess my favorite value is be curious. Uh, Usually, if you want to make something better, whether it's a product, a customer relationship, a sale, you have to be authentically curious to get at a real problem to solve. And sometimes that's asking five why questions in a row uh, to get at the root cause of what really matters. But curiosity will take you very, very far because you will discover things that others are not. So that's one value. Another value that, you know, we hold to be true at this company is prioritizing impact. So there are so many things that you could be working on. Take a higher ed customer base. We get a million product ideas from our customers of every day, it feels like. I'm sure you do. And the hardest thing is prioritizing it, thinking about what your north is as a company and being able to confidently say no to something because it's not going to impact your students and all students. So yeah, how we then reinforce those values is it's got to be recurring. It can't just be something that you have on your website once a year. Oh, yeah. No, I, I look, I totally both of those really resonate with me for a couple different reasons. Honestly, I you know, when I talk about my talk to my kids, I you know, I say like, there are four important things, there's clearly a lot more of them. But one of them is be curious, you know, to go through life with that curiosity mindset, I think is just paramount to living a good life. And I and I really appreciate the fact that that's one of the values uh, of your company. I think this is super important for all entrepreneurs, just because you, know, you have to go out into the world and, and be curious and look for new solutions. You know, so that, that really resonated with me. And the, the other one, I mean, one of our stated values is make an impact, but I really appreciate the prioritizing impact. And this is a, I think that's a really powerful nuance, right? There are lots of things that you can do but then how do you discern the things to do that will have the maximal impact? And that's not that's not as easy to, to determine. I mean, especially when a lot of things seem like they have impact. Do you use a, you know, I've seen OKRs used to do this sort of to prioritize impact. Is that is that the methodology you guys use? Yeah, we do use OKRs at the company. And the aim is that those are OKRs are annual in nature and yeah, if you're familiar with the OKR system, the idea being the company sets its objectives and how it will measure those objectives. And then those all cascade down to each individual department, each team, each individual. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen adaptations of that where, you know, there's a, a stack ranking every quarter and then to really focus on reprioritizing for maximal effect. So it's yeah, it's interesting. I, I'm, it, it's good to see. I know a lot of companies and that are SaaS companies currently leverage that that methodology, but it's uh you know I've, I've seen it work successfully. So you know a little bit more about you, Adam. This is not your first startup 
what was tell me a little bit more about the some of your previous startup experience. So People Grove you could describe was a pivot from a failed startup uh, or idea. And the general problem we aimed to solve was a similar one. A lot of our friends and peers were dissatisfied in their jobs and roles. And the way we sought to solve that was using a Tinder interface. We basically said, (laughs) well, if people can spend two hours swiping on people and they seem to enjoy that, maybe if we make the job application process that easy, they'll swipe right out of a job they don't like. Now, we did everything wrong, uh, quite simply. Right? We sat in a room. It's actually a double wide in Mountain View. And we built what we thought was this pristine app. Every pixel would be perfect. Of course, what we didn't do is actually validate that we were solving a problem for real people. Yeah. And had we started with the people we were building this product for, uh, we certainly would have learned it's not hard to apply to jobs. Like if you sit down at your desk for an hour, you can apply to a lot. You just might not have a shot at most of them. So yeah. that was our first endeavor uh, that that fell flat uh, and brought many learning experiences. As they tend to. I mean, so it sounded like really what you needed to do was talk to a lot of more customers and really get your product market fit. Is that you know more the big lesson there? Yeah, and the argument is we didn't have to build anything. We would have learned uh, just through customer discovery, some lean test that we weren't onto something. This was not the solution. So fast forward a year after starting that, it's what we did. And one of the big takeaways we learned was just that. It's not hard to apply to jobs. It's hard to have a shot. You need access. Yeah. I mean, Google, there's data out there on if you wanted a job at Google, if you had an internal referral you will have easily increased your chances of getting a job there by at least 10 times. Google employees literally get a $5,000 check if they refer you and you get hired. They're motivated refers. Yeah. So yeah, it was uh, not asking the right questions and not being willing to ask the questions in the first place, uh, which one could point to, perhaps it was fear. Perhaps it was a fear of being rejected and it was easier just to focus on building something. Yeah, it's a very common startup mistake, though. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of people. I mean, the worst days I have at Edon are the ones where people come in and say, hey, look, I've spent all of my life savings building this thing. And will you help me sell it? And I'm, and I'm like, well, how many customers have you talked to? Well, no, I, I it's great for me. So it should be great for other people. And, and then you're like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a tough one because there's not much you can do if, you know, at that point. And, I've, you know, that's happened more than a few times. And it's very common. It's one of the things we like about Startup Weekend is a big part of what you do at Startup Weekend is you just have to go talk to 100 people. And I've never seen a situation where the idea that they came in with was the idea they ended with. I mean, it may be close, but it's always there is always some pivot that's come as a result of that. So now were you able did you keep that? Uh, that structure or was this kind of that that was a failed company you shut that down and then you launched this new company so it technically is the same company in terms of the investors joined us in this new journey uh excellent we had a little bit of capital left and got real lean and uh yeah landed on on people grove after a series of pivots so, wow. Now, did you go through an accelerator program or did you do this kind of the uh, old fashioned way? So for V1 failure, no accelerator program. 
for the early days of People Grove, we were part of an accelerator called Dreamit. Uh, they're based in the East Coast, Philadelphia, and they were running a program for education-focused companies. And it was structured a little differently than some of the accelerators today. There was no upfront exchange of money for stock, but rather the incubator earned a right to invest in your next round if you were able to secure one. So interesting. Sound like a good deal to us. And was it, I mean, did it work? It sounds like it worked out. I mean, you here you are. Yeah. I mean, the program certainly facilitated a, a fair number of introductions to various universities. Uh, we got smart quickly. And in my opinion, one of the greatest benefits of an accelerator is honestly the sense of competition, right? You're working with other startups and there is this dynamic of like you, you you're pushing each other to be better. And so in that respect, I, I do believe it accelerated our efforts. Yeah. But one of the things for me that, that I've seen is so valuable about accelerators is exactly what you're trying to solve with PeopleGrove, right? The network. You know, I, I've, there are many companies that have gone through that had, you know, a good idea. They, you know, went to Techstars and then they get access to capital they just would not have at, had access to or access to mentors and access to those things. So, I mean, a lot of what accelerators are doing are these little microcosms where they're helping create access to the network. I mean, so much of that is, you know, just like, what, you know, Google getting someone to to refer you, you know, if, you, if you're an accelerator and they know the head of purchasing or, you know, procurement at a certain company and you happen to have that product, they're just making those facilitations it's just so much quicker. So a yeah, big fan of that and finding the right one that matches. Would you go through, you know, in your next company, would you go through an accelerator again? Or is that a, I mean, you've gone, you've come a long way. Yeah. I don't know if I would, but I also think it, it depends. It depends sure. on the accelerator. It depends on the terms. It depends on the value you you think you're going to get. Uh, so it's hard to say. Yeah. So how did you, uh, through, what a cool story. I didn't realize that your original company, you know, or your new company is really a pivot from the, that other company. I mean, that that must have taken, I mean, those are dark days. I had to pivot our medical device company and I just couldn't quite pull it off. I mean, it, it, we were in it about six years. And so there was a bunch of sunk costs and we had a lot of investors on board. And so it was very difficult to do so. So I just remember that being a very challenging experience. Was that Was it hard for you or was it pretty clear Hey, no, this is a much better path forward. At the time, it was very hard. My attitude, my attitude towards startup and work today is very different than it was five years ago during those times. So prior to a startup, the way things often worked would be if you work hard, you study hard, things will generally work out. That's not how the startup worked. I was working plenty oh, no. hard. There was no lack of hours. And wasn't seeing any results. And so that was a very humbling experience. It was the yeah, first time where like you could argue, yeah, just completely swung and miss uh, in that kind of way. And it can feel embarrassing, right? Sure. To, to individuals that expected differently for you. What I very quickly realized is that I was the only one thinking about that. Other people weren't thinking about my failures. They didn't care. And it was all in my head. And when taking more of an attitude of like, there's the Nelson Mandela quote of you're either learning or you're winning. I probably butchered the quote a little bit, but when I having like where you're going though, but when having more of that attitude of like, all right, so what we learned, let's move on. 
having no fear of failure, seeing failure as the quickest way to learn and get smarter, my attitude about startups and a lot else kind of changed. I think you gained some really valuable wisdom early on. I got, you know, my my failure was the at Priya was the biggest learning. And it took me a while to recognize it as a learning. You know, I think a lot of times you get, at least I did, you know, get my ego wrapped up in all these things and I had taken a lot of other money and there was a lot of other things. So it took me a while to decouple those things. But I think, you know, I completely agree with you that mindset shift is is critically important to startup success because, it, you know, it's just the odds are against you. I mean, it's just a difficult thing to do. You know, despite your best efforts, you can still not be successful and to, to look at that as such. So I, I think that's really spot on wisdom. And I mean, obviously, you guys have made great strides. You've raised a bunch of capital. You've got a lot of customers. You're helping a lot of people. And you were recognized for, for your efforts. So tell me about this Forbes uh, 30 under 30. How did that come about? Well, I'd like to say that uh, it was life-changing. I would say more than anything else, it was probably uh, something that made my parents proud. <laughs> <laughs> it's always good to get your name in lights. You know, that's a pretty, it's a, it's a big honor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the truth is that the way the process works is you get nominated. So uh, some of my my friends, our investors nominated my co-founder and I for the recognition. And yeah, certainly humbled to uh, to get it. But yeah, realistically, went right back to work the day after. Sure. <laughs> but but certainly grateful to, to be recognized uh, for it. Well, you seem to have a lot of humility. I mean, it's not one of those things that I think is going to, you know, boost your ego. I, I think it's it's great, to, but it is great to, you know, stop and smell the roses a little bit. I mean, you know, the journey of entrepreneurship is hard. And, you know, when, when you're getting some wins, it's good to appreciate those and, you know, continue to go back and do the, you know, complete or, or, or stay focused on the mission of the company. Um, so I, I definitely appreciate that about you. So how did you end up in Reno? I mean, you know, here you are, you have a distributed team, you know, you, you're funded, you're growing, you've got, you know, how did you end up in Reno? So our VP of marketing, uh, whose name is Brian Landaburu, uh, has lived in Reno all his life. He is a UNR grad and I'd come out here pre-COVID just to visit, see what Reno was all about. And I just remember being really excited by the atmosphere this was pre-COVID, so we're eating pizza outside at Noble uh, with our dog, seeing other people there, uh, and there was just a good energy about the town. And so fast forward, and when it, COVID really came around the corner, and my wife and I were asking ourselves, do we really want to work from home from a 500-square-foot apartment in the Bay Area, or might this be an opportunity to try something new, get some more space? Uh, Reno was the first place we thought of, uh, just given the, the the things we liked about the town, the beautiful outdoors, uh, the people that we'd encountered who were all friendly. Uh, we already had found our favorite dog park. So we ticked all of our boxes to say, yeah, let's give it a go. Well, we've got to give your head of marketing an economic development award for recruiting you guys. So, uh, you know, many thanks to him for, for bringing you here. And, you know, what's your experience been? I mean, you, you moved from, you know, you've been in big cities. What's the experience like for you? I, you know, we were talking before about skiing yesterday at Mount Rose. Like that's, uh, that's always great, you know? Yeah. I mean, beyond certainly the outdoors are beautiful. 
I mentioned our, our favorite dog park and just like the sense of community there that everyone knows each other's names sounds trivial, but that wasn't really the way things were in San Francisco, right? You could live in an apartment building with hundreds of people and not even know like the person's name who lives next door to you. And then in addition, frankly, I, I went on LinkedIn and just searched other people living in Reno. And by happenstance, uh, I discovered others who were in a similar stage of life, career, even entrepreneurship as myself. So I uh, have formulated a, a little crew here and yeah, feels home now. Yeah. And that, I guess that was one of my questions is, you know, moving here during a pandemic is not always the easiest time to get plugged into community. So it, it sounds like you've been able to cultivate some community through the dog park, through some of your outreach. Is that really? Outdoor distance uh, dining and backyard get togethers. So keeping it safe, but yeah, I've been able to to find a few individuals here that we didn't know were here. Uh, another example, my wife is a alum of NYU and she's discovered two classmates from NYU that were out here as well. So, and then as Reno's one of Reno's top ambassadors now, I'm, I'm convincing uh, some of my peers to join me. So one of our operations uh, managers at the company uh, moved to Reno as well. And uh, yeah, I want to ensure it doesn't become the next Bay Area, but to the extent uh, I can recruit some good people to join me here, I think it's a great place to be. Look, you and I are completely aligned on that. I feel like I'm going to deputize you as an economic developer. I mean, didn't you change your uh, Zoom background to be the arch or something like that? To uh, Oh, 100%. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it, and it is interesting to watch the transformation. I mean, the growth that we're seeing has its shadow side. Like, it is not ideal right now. The housing prices are tough. There are definitely challenges but I, you know, as the community is transforming, one of the big challenges has always been having high quality jobs here. And so having companies like yours here, and even if, you know, again, your your jobs are all over the place, it really does, you know, prioritize your impact on the community, right? Like being able to pr- keep more students from UNR in the community that want to stay is a huge benefit to the community. And so I just and, you know, you can see this in some of the the data uh, during the pandemic. I mean, we are in a much better position than our neighbors in the South from a diversification standpoint. And it takes more and more companies like you to to come here and uh, help us further diversify the the economy. So I really appreciate you making the commitment. I, I know it's a great place to live. I've always known that. But, you know, I mean, and the other thing I'd add is the local businesses out here. We love them. So from coffee shops to restaurants to everything in between, just hopefully uh, able to support some of the businesses out here as well as is important to us. I, as a particular example, maybe I shouldn't say this, but in San Francisco, my morning routine routine involves Starbucks every morning. I haven't been to Starbucks for 12 months and I love it. <laughs> so yep. some, some great, <laughs> some great options here. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's uh it's great to connect and support the locals, right? I mean, you get to know them in a different way. Like one of the things I've always loved about this is, you know, I'm speaking with the mayor in an upcoming podcast. You run into the governor at the farmer's market. You get to know people. They're just real people. And we're all committed to making this a great place to live. And I think, you know, one of the things you mentioned about 
integrating your new employees with the culture is one of the same challenges we face as integrating new people in the community. I mean, one of the things we were doing pre-COVID was having these founder dinners, and I'm looking forward to getting those back together. So we can help someone like you get plugged into the community. Now, you're, you know, you're an overachiever. You've already gotten met a lot of people, and I know you know some of the other founders. But it's really important for us to help bring new people into the culture of Reno. I mean, we want to take the, the, some of the great learnings from other communities, but we also don't want to lose what makes Reno great. And so like, to me, that's a big part of the, the founder integration and, and really, in, in many ways, part of the inspiration of this podcast. So I, I just want to say, Adam, I really appreciate your philosophy. Like I can, we have a lot of sh- shared core values and I'm just excited you're here and I'm looking forward to really getting a chance to connect with you in person <laughs> and get you more plugged into the community. But thanks again for your time, and um, we'll see you here hopefully in the next couple months as soon as things get uh, a little bit more uh, open. Yeah, excited to be here.